Thank you for joining the conversation today. I'm Randy Yu, Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the new podcast series, Rose Library Presents, Atlanta Intersections. Atlanta Intersections explores how lives and places are bound together in this city we call home. Today I'm talking with John Arge, an Atlanta artist and photographer, about his life, his work, his collection, and the city's nightlife. The Rose Library is proud to be the home of the John Arge Photographs and Papers. We are back for another episode of Atlanta Intersections. I am delighted this week to welcome the notorious A-R-G-E, John Arge to the podcast. Arge, thank you for being with me today. Welcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime I could stay home and be with you, you know that. I really appreciate you being here with us today because I think of your collection is one of the Rose Library's crown jewels. Oh. And um, I think of that because one of the goals of our collections is to document lives, places, and community. And I honestly can't think of a better collection that that uh, can do that, not only at the Rose, but um, anywhere else. So today I want to kind of talk to you about your life about your art, about All your right. photographs, and about Atlanta. How does that, how does that sound? That sounds Arch. wonderful. So, um, Arch, where are you from? I am from right here, where I am right now. Uh, I am from Venice, Florida. I was born and raised here. Um, uh, I was born in 1968. I was one of the last babies born in the local hospital before they closed the... <laughs> Uh, nursery, although my mother said that wasn't my fault, <laughs> but I was one of the last babies born on what is now the island of Venice. Uh, I should say born at the hospital. I'm sure lots of babies have been born there, but just in terrible situations. I always say I'm from Sarasota because Venice, when you try to say Venice, it, it, it just gets them to be, and people, a lot of people know where Sarasota is. It's the next town up. So that is where I'm from. And currently that is where I am. So you, you've gone full circle. I've gone, yeah, really. Really, <laughs> I've come back to the waiting room. When did you come to Atlanta, and, and what brought you to Atlanta? This is where I say a car. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this, this is going to be a long one, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, you're all right. Um, basically, when I graduated high school, I had two scholarships, two art scholarships. One was for the Ringling School of Art and Design here in Sarasota. And one was for Savannah College of Art and Design. Now, my father at the time, it hurt a little, but at the time said, um, we love you, we support you, but you're not going to school locally. <laughs> you have to leave. And it, I didn't understand, but he, is, he got, you know, it was, he was born in upstate New York. It was a life of whatever. And, and he, out of the blue, signed up for the Korean War. And he always, he didn't talk much about the war, but he always credited that as being something that got him out of New York State. And after that, then you couldn't, you know, it was okay to move. You can do it. You can change your life. And I think that that's what he was, it was important at 18. He's like, you know, you need to, you know, food money will be there, but it might be a few days. And your laundry will be done by yourself. So, and 
so I was in Savannah. Uh, I went to school in Savannah, of course, and we all know how that turned out. So then I was working in Savannah uh, for bed and breakfast and going to Atlanta quite often, like on the weekends. At some point, I don't, it's in the diaries. I'd have to reference the diaries, which you have. So, but I somehow, I can't remember if I had, I had a friend who worked at the Ritz Carlton. I basically, the bed and breakfast I was working at in Savannah ended up winning four stars, which was unusual for a bed and breakfast. It was high end. And so the Ritz, we were kind of connected to the Ritz Carlton, which had just opened in Atlanta. WB Johnson had just opened the Ritz. Um, and I had a friend who worked there. So when I, I, I kind of just, I had a position waiting and, you know, but again, that went like college and I was bounced around that organization like crazy. And it just, it was hard in the service industry to put me anywhere where there weren't customers. <laughs> so uh, that's how I got to Atlanta. I mean, I, I basically, and I was a very different person. I wasn't doing artwork. I wasn't, uh, when I got there, I was just a waiter and a frustrated artist. And so I was doing the art stickers on the sly, but I think it was a full year and a half before I identified myself as Arge. You said you were coming to Atlanta while you were living in Savannah. Kind of what, what drew you to Atlanta um, during that time? Better nightlife. Uh, just, you know, Savannah was still pretty, well, Savannah is a small town in many ways, and it was still pretty small at that time. And, you know, I had gone there because I had been called there, basically, because of the college of scholarship. Um, and I, though I loved it, I, you know, just you're 21 years old, 22 years old, and it's, you know, better nightlife. That's really all I can say. So you mentioned you went to Savannah for art. Do you remember when you got interest, when you got interested in art? Um, I don't remember a time that I wasn't, I don't, it, I mean, it was, I was drawing on the walls with my mom's makeup. I mean, I literally... I don't remember a time, and it's not that it's artwork. I, 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 I tend to think if, it, if I was musical, it would have been, I would have been, however it would have manifested itself, it was gonna. So luckily it manifested itself not through crime or, or what, but it, it was just art, yeah. It was always a thing I did. I, I mean, I've never known what I'm doing, but I, I've always had to do it immediately. Yeah. I mean, it was, there was never a time I wasn't interested in art. It was the only natural, I think, I mean, I can't remember and I'm sure it's not specific, but I'm pretty sure I remember my guidance counselor in high school telling me that I was in the bottom 10% grade wise of graduating, but top 10% for scholarship because of the artwork. And that was literally because I drew those awful cartoons and those, you know, the, the crazy, you know, the, the, my, the senior show, the big award I got was for a thing called Potpourri, P-O-P-E-Pourri. And it was a Vatican-oriented gift catalog. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was like eight or nine pages hand-drawn of things an 18-year-old who isn't very informed found hilarious about Christianity and or Catholicism. I don't even know what to call it. And, I mean, uh, Bernard Rosenberg, who was my high school art teacher and who was who is an amazing man, who was an amazing man. He was so good to me. And he really, he, you know, nurtured what I did, even though what I did was very difficult and crazy. And, you know, got it pushed through. And a couple of times, like I had one cartoon I did that was a burning school bus. And it was just one of our school buses and then it was on fire. And I really think I just did it because I like red and yellow. Together. I mean, it was just draw what you draw, what you know. It's like I've always done, draw what you know. 
or, or, you know, yeah, draw what you know, but then, you know, set it on fire or turn it upside down, <laughs> do something, do something. But anyway, so like, like that, that was hanging somewhere and they had to take it down because it upset the bus drivers. I mean, now I would be put in an institution and I mean, you cannot draw, <laughs> I would be labeled a terrorist, but, but then it was a little looser. Uh, so like the potpourri thing, like the librarian, the head librarian after hit one county, after hit one, my scholarships, after everything was hanging at the library is like, and the librarian forced it to be taken down because it was a mixture of church and state. So, but that's interesting. You've always been doing art um, and you always remember doing it. So, but then you also said when you got to Atlanta, you weren't doing it. I think I was always doing it when I went to art school and then art school didn't go well, not because of the art. When I left college and then started working just in the service industry, I thought that was it. I thought, well, we tried it and it doesn't work and I don't know how to go forward and I don't know what to, you know. Um, and, you know, at the time, it, I was sort of forming the opinion, well, how do you put it? I hate meeting a 21-year-old artist because you're not, okay? <laughs> Sorry, I sound crunchy, but it's true. Um, no, I, there's no other. To me, art is what I was called to do. Doctors are called to be a doctor. Policemen are called to be a policeman. People are called to their careers. Art is my career. And in no other career can you simply go, I'm a paramedic now. <laughs> you have to go to school. You have to, or at least apply yourself in the industry. So my thing was always that you're an artist when enough people collect your work or steal your work or whatever, when your work can stand alone without you, then you're an artist. So I didn't have, at the time I couldn't think, well, I just want to be an artist. I'm going to force this. So I had stopped doing art and that's then the journals. I mean, I hadn't, I would go home at night and draw my thing like a graphic novel, draw my life like a graphic novel. Um, and then when I got to Atlanta, I started doing the stickers. I mean, I, I had this weird, I don't know. I can't tell you what made me, you know, I know where the nickname Arge came from. My friend Janice, who I live, you know, stay with now. I don't know where the spelling came from. I'm, I recall where I got the word because remember this was the early nineties. This, this was before a computer could simply print out whatever word you wanted in a million different fonts. If you wanted to say something that you didn't have a way to print it, you had to look through a thousand magazines until you found that sentence and cut it out. Um, so I remember being in, God, I hope there's security footage on some dusty something somewhere. I remember I would go to Kinko's overnight when I was working at the Ritz and I was living in Atlanta. I would go to Kinko's overnight because only people who worked at, then at Kinko's overnight were art students who needed access to all the supplies. So they didn't look at you or talk to you. I mean, I could walk up there and say, oh, thank you. I'd been there six hours. I made four color copies. And by the way, you're out of tune on all eight machines. But I remember taking this, taking my T-shirt off. So I am naked from the waist up in a Kinko's at 4 a.m. I photocopied the tag, then cut the L off it. And that is literally all the things, all the signatures for Arge. That's literally where it came from. It came from a Hanes t-shirt or a whatever I was wearing, Fruit of the Loom. It was their font, their large. And so that's, you know, and then I, but I don't know what drove me to put this name on things and put these images out there and just hand out thousands of copies of it. I guess I was trying to break out of my own self, maybe, or trying to just 
get past, if I could only get past me, I could be who I wanted to be. So first off, we have to, we're going to have to reveal your secret. And that is that John Arge is not, is not your real name. Correct. Uh, I have to kill everybody. Did you come up with it when you were in Atlanta or was this something you were going towards when you were in Savannah? Growing up in a family, my family on both sides had a long history of magnificent male names. Graydon, Theron, Darius. I mean, amazing names. And, you know, I guess hating every branch of the family by 1968, uh, they took, they gave me two brand new names. Suck. And so, you know, and I was Randall Jonathan. Well, my father was Richard Graydon, and he went by R.G. Baker. So I went by R.J. R.J. morphed into Arge. It just, Arge would, you know. And then, like I said, the spelling came later. But so I was just Arch for years. And I would have trouble with, like, the galleries. They'd say, well, what's your name? I was like, Arch. And it's like, well, what's your, you know, you need a first name. I was like, no, you don't. And you wouldn't treat Cher like this, would you? <laughs> and what was funny is, so it was Arch for years. And then when Facebook, really Facebook, was the first time 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when I got online, when we were all getting online, uh, and you just, you need a, what do they call it, a Christian name? Two name, the, yeah, you need, they call it, for, for you had to fill both holes. So, or it doesn't go anywhere or do anything, because I think Arge alone is a bad word in German, I think, I don't know. Um, but, so I just took my middle name, John Arge. So it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a made up name. My mother once, she was upset, because she didn't understand how people would know she was my mother. <laughs> yeah. My last name was Arch. How will people locally know? And I was like, well, you are free to change your name, change your name to Sharon Arch at any time. Like, you can't, like, that's... So, coming, like, when you're coming to Atlanta, is are you adopting kind of this, you said... No. Early, you, you said earlier in this conversation that it... it it kind of made you become who you were. So was this part and parcel of your, of coming to Atlanta too, right? Are, are these two separate things that just happened to occur in Atlanta? I think they were happening unrelated, but we were all heading toward this point where it all came together and then widened back out. But I think that it really, no, I was not, I was not even actually doing the art when I, I was doing a little bit of it to leave it around in Savannah but no, I was really just, I was making good money and then I wanted to party on the weekends. But I was, you know, I was going to a whole different set. I was at the Far Road Library. I was at, you know, I was at a whole different set of gay clubs before I found the Metro. So, and then it all kind of, you know, and then, I mean, the, the, the Metro begged that you used an alias. So, <laughs> so it really, that all kind of fit in too. But I think it was just basically, I mean, there was nothing wrong with my childhood or my upbringing. But I did not want to be the person that I was, maybe society would dictate I was going to become or what have you. And I just, I, again, I wasn't upset. I wasn't, it wasn't bad, but I just had this weird wanderlust to be anything else. And then too, with the name, it didn't mean anything. So there's not like you're putting out like, you know, I know everybody go, you know, I, I once had a friend, we fought for like six hours about my narcissism. And, <laughs> and but finally he just, the, the big thing was everything you do, 
you do to say to hear your own name. You know, that's a very damning statement. Except I made my name up, so it's all kind of meaningless, isn't it? <laughs> it's like I don't get upset when you know, like the AJC got my. But after writing the press release for, uh, um, my Rose Library acquisition, you think I made name wrong in the AJC, which it doesn't bother me. It's all good, you know. But it doesn't, that's why it's never really bothered me when you don't, you know, I will respond to a lot of different names. And because growing up, I was, when I was little, I was Rand, Randy, Randall, RJ, trying to find my own name or trying to just get away from my own name. I don't know. It's funny now. I can immediately place somebody who says my name from behind me. Like if somebody goes, Oh, Randy, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I got to get out of this grocery store. Um, can we talk about you coming out? Well, I guess we can. Oh, no, thanks, Randy. <laughs> well, this this is, <laughs> and I'll tell you it. I'm sure I was teased, but I don't recall it. And I know I was, but I don't really. I'm, you know, it's like the line I used. It was my mother's line because I asked her once about my childhood, and just once, and she was like, "Oh, yeah." Mm. You didn't really like it. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, just what? And she's like, that's when she said, well, listen, okay, born 40 at the age of nine, you turn 15. And that's basically, so to me, I guess I remember being a little scared that, that basically just a generalized fear that society will put on you through terrible TV dramas. But it wasn't my life and it wasn't how it was going. So I had this like kind of residual just because I, you know, because of questionable programming. But it never really was an issue. And then it's never been an issue. I have never liked the double standards. I, I absolutely loathe being the gay artist a lot of times in a group because she's not the black artist. They're not the white straight artist. I don't understand why I have to be. But, you know, everybody needs a you – know, um, so when I was 30, I got a magnificent interview. David Goldman, Betty Jack Devine, was working at Southern Voice at the time. And at the time, the editor of Southern Voice, Citizen Crane, we called him, um, <laughs> he would insist that you say the person's gay. But it's, I mean, everything about the images, every word that fell out of my mouth, everything that it's, I mean, so David hated, and David really hated that. So David would clunk it in. Like, John Arch, who attended the Zeno uh, College of Art and Design on scholarship and is gay, moved to Atlanta and, you know, just clunk it in the middle. But it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful interview. It was full page, front page. And I sent it to my mother. She loved it. You know, blah, just absolutely loved it. But about mm, 20 minutes into the conversation, she said, um, now, honey, it says you're gay. And I went, yeah. Says a lot of things, and, you know. And she, she's like, well, should we have a conversation about that? <laughs> and I was like, stop. When did you get a call from my brother? And he was crying because he thought you wouldn't love him anymore because he was a heterosexual. And she's like, well, never. And I went, good, because you're not going to get it from me. You know, it has nothing. Your only role in my homosexuality is disapproving of my partner, like a good mother-in-law should. 
you know, that's not other. It doesn't. It's not a thing. And she went, okay, that's fair. I like that. Then I was like, there was a silence. I went, and by the way, you're shocked. I mean, you didn't, well, I mean, I think we'd had a few conversations about it or we'd had, you know, blah, 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 you know, went, like, I was like, well, you know, what about that? You know, what about that summer when I was 13 and I made you take me see Victor Victoria 13 times? N- n- nothing, you know? How about that time when I was line kicking, like line dancing at five to Heat Miser on a year without Santa Claus? How about that? Nothing, nothing in there. And she finally went, Oh, we knew on the ride home. So you brought up the Metro. So uh, for, for the folk, for folks who don't know, um, what, what was the Metro? The Metro was a nightclub. Mm-hmm. Don Honeywell opened. Uh, he owned or was partner in, I'm not really sure. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm sure there's no paperwork to indicate any of this anywhere. Um, but uh, the Gallus basement bar and steakhouse uh, down on Gallus, uh, down on, um, oh, it was a Hustler Street. Crescent, Crescent, Crescent Avenue, right? So there was an old house across the street. There was just a bunch of old houses down there. And the steakhouse was in kind of a grand house. And the Metro was just a nice house, just a little old, probably built in the 20s. Um it's somebody's bedroom now in one of those low level high rise, whatever. It's just, I stand there and that's, and literally that like, it's somebody's bedroom right on that corner at street level. Like, I don't understand how, um, I, I just don't, uh, I mean, I worry about all the towers being built on what is a bedrock of basically licked out baggies and, Lots of other things. I think everything's just going to, the basin's going to collapse and all the buildings are going to slide together at 10th Street. Um, but they opened the Metro and it was just, it was a crazy, I don't know. I mean, it didn't have, basically, nobody was anybody, so everybody was a star. I mean, that's the only way to put it. They opened this place. You had a great mix. You always had a great mix. I think they were giving them, as I remember, they were giving them a little hell on the liquor license for it. You know, it is right in Hustler Town. It's an extended gallus, which already was whatever. He just opened and gave away liquor for months. (laughs) I mean, to establish it. He wasn't going anywhere. And by the time it got open, it was established. And I had been going to other clubs and I wasn't happy and they weren't, it wasn't what I was looking for. And then at the Metro, there was a drag group called Eleganza. Trina Saxon, Clive Jackson, Baby Doll Schultz, uh, Lurleen uh, Wallace. It just amazing, amazing group. And I wandered in there and it was funny because it's incredible too. The, the old Metro was incredible in that like how easy it is to just simply with the moving a few like that game, you say move one stick and make a different number. Like how easily you can make a bar out of a nice house. <laughs> you basically cut the corner, you know, the, the center kitchen out and that's the bar. And then all the rooms revolve around it. And I would stand in there and all this craziness is going on. And I would think this was somebody's home and it was still enough of a home that you could, I, that's where the Christmas tree goes. I know that's where the Christmas tree goes. And for 50 years, a Christmas tree went there. And I was like, what if these people come back? What is, I want to go see my childhood home. And then they walk in and there's like some drag extravaganza going on. And so, but I wandered in there and I knew, I guess I just, I felt like I belonged because it didn't matter whether you did. The only thing they wanted to be was yourself. 
And the crazier, the better. We won't remember you. So, I mean, I just, I started going there. I started handing out the stickers there. And I'd been putting the stickers, and I think a lot of the club owners were mad at me because people would stick the stickers on things. One night, I kind of befriended Trina Saxon, Tim Scott, who did Trina Saxon. And he opened his purse. And I love saying that line, by the way. He opened his purse, and he had basically stolen all the stickers that I just put out. I like the claw. I would just hand, like, put a stack down. And I don't know what made me, but I said, that's me. And he went, no, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, yes, it is. And he went, no, he's funny. (laughs) And I was like, thanks. Um, And within a week, I had my own night at the Metro. And within a few months, the service industry was done. Like I couldn't. And that's where, coinciding with that is basically where the diaries that you have, the, the graphic novel became one strong image. And then, you know, the last 30 pages are blank because... You said that um, you got your uh, you had your own night. Now, what what does what does that what does that mean? Drink tickets. That's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, nothing. What we did is I I was already playing with the transparencies that I would later go on to make the color artwork with, and I guess I just copied my name, the Arch logo, a T-shirt thing, onto a piece of transparency. We cut them out, put them in the corners of all the TV screens because it was a video bar. Um, so what, wait, what is that? What does video bar mean? The, what is music that? It was basically a lot of times the music was videos playing on screens that were all over the space. Um, or they would be always be playing. So we just put it on the corner of each screen. Like I had a channel and played certain movies. I think we played John Waters. We played different stuff like that. I did a bunch of new stickers to hand out that night because everybody kind of was wondering who was doing the stickers. And when I say everybody, the 30 people there and <laughs> But what they lacked in numbers, they more than made up for in tenacity. So don't <laughs> discount those 30 people. It's just a small group. Um, so I think there was a little bit of play in that. And then it just kind of fell into promotions. I mean, it just kind of fell into, and then I ended up managing the place because I was there already. And I was probably, I mean, I think back now, but I was probably, I never got out of control. So I think they just were like, oh, well, you should have some keys then. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't anything we, you know, legally we can't be here, but you should stay. Um, you ended up um, with kind of the stickers first and then the transparencies, and then you found a home, like an outlet for this art that you'd been working on in, in the Metro. Yes. I mean, basically within like, uh, it kind of started with, I would do the drawings for the ads, et cetera, would take out. Um, the Metro would take out like an et cetera or Southern Voice or things like that. I would do the drawings for my night. Well, then they're like, oh, we'll do this drawing for the Halloween party we're having. We don't. So, yes, I found a huge regular outlet for my work, um, which really would still be going on if it wasn't for Joe Camel. <laughs> um, yes, I do have a little bit of hatred toward Joe Camel, but that's the long story. Um, but it basically I, that led to that. Then I was just Again, I had to do it. So I would make the transparency pieces, but I would make color copies and just give those out as cards and things to people because I didn't think anybody would want my original artwork. Mm. At the time, I just didn't think it was it was just something I had to do, and I thought having the copy was better. Uh, I don't know. It was just something that... But, yeah, basically that just opened floodgate to be creative. That it really was just a creative. Because even at... I did notice, like, I would say that even at the flip side of this manifesting itself... 
is like at the Ritz, I was suddenly finding myself in charge of a lot of bulletin boards and, oh, you're artistic. It's Black History Month. I'm like, well, there's a lot of, you know, black people here. You should ask them to do the the board or, you know, or, you know, oh, God, you know, it's what's her name's retirement. Would you do a card? <laughs> so it was already kind of manifesting itself. And so you're creating this art, creating the stickers, the transparencies, the ads. When did your when did you pick up a camera? When did it when did that become part of Arge, I should say? Early. And I had never had a camera before. There's like I have eight pictures from college. Like it's not we weren't I wasn't raised in a family. We always I mean, dad loved technology. We always had cameras, but I was going to the metro. And I might point out that the entire time and ever since and always, I loathe being in public. I'm scared to death surrounded by people. I'm terrified. It's I, I didn't. And it, the weird thing is, but like, like I did, I would end up eventually even doing some numbers dressed as a, you know, lounge act thing person. And I, I remember thinking one night, it's a packed club. The only place to be alone is on stage. <laughs> but everybody's looking at you. But that didn't matter as much. It just, you know, it's a made-up name. I mean, they can't, like, they can't look me up in the phone book if I fuck this up tonight. Excuse me, sorry. Um, they can't just go home and, like, you know, find John Arge in the phone book. Or Arge. At that time, there was no John. Uh, so I had this crippling anxiety. And so the stickers and the artwork and the things to hand out always meant that there was something between me and them. I, here, you know, I can give you something, but, but my arms are always between us. And then the camera became an extension of that because I could almost disassociate. I'll take the pictures. I'm here to capture the moment. And also too, because of my anxiety, I couldn't remember people's names. I couldn't, I'm meeting a bunch of people and I can't remember their names. And so I thought, well, with a Polaroid, I'll take the picture, I'll get them to sign it. And then I've got a flashcard to study. But as I've said that, you know, I can't read scribble and you're wearing a wig and none of this is, you know, <laughs> I don't know, but I just kept doing it. I can't tell you why I can't tell you how I can't tell you where I kept finding the money because then remember that I would take all the pictures I took, go to Kinko's <laughs> because six Polaroids laid out are one eight and a half by 11 sheet. Make copies, color copies of everyone for everyone. And the next week, have 50 packets with me in an envelope with a color cardstock card with one of my drawings on it or something. Then I would give them this picture. And, you know, that wasn't, I mean, yeah, I stamped everything and have my name all over it. It really wasn't that. I wanted, I was happy that, you know, they had this picture of themselves. Maybe a lot of people came from backgrounds where they weren't appreciated for who they were or whatever. But, and as I've said in the Polaroids, two things were going on. First and foremost, I always want my subject to look good. If my subject looked good, I don't ever have to talk about what I created again because they're happy with it. And Polaroids are for folks who don't know are instant photographs, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. you're in the nightclub um, and your collection is remarkable there. You have, what is it? Over 3000 Polaroids in your collection. Oh, it's almost six Four? It's almost 6,000 Polaroids yeah. in the collection, and none of them are casual snapshots. 
No, I really um, they are all they are all posed. They are all yeah. posed photographs, and that was intentional. Yes, yes, that was absolutely intentional. I would also fill it out. A lot of times, there's a lot of Polaroids of people together who did not know one another. I would just say, hey, you both look great. Let's do this. But I don't understand. Shut up. Just get in the picture. <laughs> um, I would also, and this was, it was a weird sort of thing. I, was, I mean, I don't remember realizing it. I don't remember learning it. I don't remember anything. But if the sh- angle is looking up, people look better. So I would get on things like it was a time. Like there's two reasons I don't do bullards anymore. First off, the new film sucks. And secondly, I am too old to get on a bar stool and stand. <laughs> Like I can't, I mean, I can still do it. I'm not old enough, but anyway, falling is much more catastrophic now than it was when I was 25 and drunk. Um, so I would, you know, I would take, I, as best I could, I would try to get up on things as my courage and my confidence grew. Um, like at the new, the Metro moved, it had to. Uh, and at the new place, they had a better dressing room. And Regina Sims, like most drag queen, the drag, like, Every surface is immediately covered, like makeup, bags, shoes, whatever. And I couldn't get up on anything to take her picture. And I wasn't getting what I felt were like really conveyed how beautiful I thought she was. And so one night I said, Regina, you need to make room on this, the table for me to get up on it and take your picture. She, and she was hooting and hollering, queen, you're going to fall queen. What are you doing? This is ridiculous. Oh, queen, you are too much. You were trifling. Like you can't. And then I took that picture and I, every other time for the rest of our lives that I walked in that room, Regina would just put her arm out and pour everything off onto the floor. <laughs> make room, make room, get a table in here. <laughs> that's yeah. That's where it started. I mean, that's. Well, and you also brought up a great point that, um, Film packs were limited. Ten shots, and I, it was rare I ever had more than three packs with me. But also, too, you could go get a pack at 1130. But generally, 30, I mean, you're not going to take more than, it. that's that's it, Queens. I mean, that's not, it's not, you get the best. Well, how how did you make that decision on what on what to shoot when you when you know unlike digital cameras where you could shoot hundreds of thousands in one evening how did how did you make those decisions? Your outfit is fantastic. You guys are having. I mean, that's not Trina. I, love, I mean, yeah, I think the decisions a lot of times were made for me. I might just push two groups together. I worked for Etcetera Magazine for a long time, and because I was out at night, because I was whatever they would send me out sometimes to be the nightlife photographer. But th- that was a different beast than what I was doing. I mean, this is like, you just have to go to, let's say, the armory and make it look fine. I walked in, it's like 10 p.m. There's, you know, 18 people in a place, all in groups of three or more. I remember just, hey, you, all of you, get over here, get over here. All of you get together. And I admit, that place looks so fun and packed, but none of those people knew each other. Not, they didn't understand what I was doing. I was probably mean to them. Um, but it got, it basically just showed, and I'm sure later they were like, look at all the fun we were having. Look, we're in this week's ex- issue. But because, again, I didn't do it to be mean. It, you created, you know, I got up on something. We took a picture down. Everybody looked great. Their outfits, you know, here, move this, move it, whatever. Like in everything I create. I just, if something su- is successful, it's because the confidence or the beauty of my subject shines through me. Despite me, it will make its way through. It's not me. It's them. The remarkable thing about your photographs in aggregate 
is that they document a community at a very particular time and place. Were you aware that you were creating a portrait of a community in Atlanta at a particular time when you were doing it? You know, I have said everything I've ever created, I did so very on purpose. Everything I have ever achieved, it was completely by accident. I didn't, I don't know what kept me doing it. Like, you know, the pictures, let's say at the, at the, uh, for et cetera, were just an extension of what else I was doing. And I just simply applied the processes I understood as I did it to it. I mean, you know, it's just like, it's repeat, 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 repeat. Um, but no, I, there can't, I can't, I marvel at, in 2000, I was part of the biennial at the contemporary. And what I did was because the Polaroids were six up on an eight and a half by 11 sheet, I made four, four foot by eight foot panels on foam core covered in those pants, covered in those of just thousands of Polaroids. And I hung that as a backdrop in my artwork, which was, you know, inspired by the Polaroids and the nightlife and the life I was living. I hung that salon style on top of it. And the director, oh, I can't remember. Oh, this is bad. I can't remember her name. But the director of the contemporary at that time stood in front of the wall and said, look, it's not amazing that you took this many Polaroids, but it's amazing. She's like, it's not amazing that you know this many people, but it's amazing. And actually, it was just Rosser and like, you know, 700 times in 16 different ways. I didn't really know people. There were like 15 people on it all. Um, and she's like, what's amazing is that you then stopped everything to get the signatures. Like the, everything, there's bands. There, I mean, everything stopped. And I don't know what made me do that. But I guess I just wanted the people. They, they, it's happening. Like You took the picture and it's coming out. They're going to want to look at it naturally, see if it's bad. Or they just want, it's happening right there. It's a process that's happening, so it's interesting. And it very kind of quickly became known you get to sign them. So people, they knew the drill. Uh, and in fact, a lot of times, like, you know, they would sign big, so other people couldn't sign at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, that became, it's, that was a thing that, like, what drove me to it? I can't even tell you. I can't. That's why I kind of feel a little embarrassed by all of this. Because I can't take credit for it. I used it. Mm. This was all I had. I mean, it, I mean, I basically, everything is a bridge to somewhere else. Doors open, not because I need to leave here, but because I want to see what's on the other side of it. Um, it's just you've got to keep, and everything is a resource, and it's if it's parked, it's worthless. Um, and, you, and it might as well just keep, plus two with the contemporary, you know, Uri Vachten got me, and it was a very nice, I didn't belong there. In that, no, in that, like, no. I remember hanging on my work and saying, where do we put the prices? Receiving the information that, oh, no, 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 we're not a selling gallery. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's like a foodless grocery store. I don't understand. Like, I didn't really. So subsequently, the space I was given, like, 30 feet long and I had to kind of spread this out. Like, you know, the four, the, I mean, you know, cause I can't, I couldn't afford to do 50 pieces and frame them and hang there. I mean, that's always been one of the, one of the biggest downfalls of my work. Like I can't, the framing and the, it, it's expensive for a person to do. Uh, I, it's how I filled the space, but it was a resource that I had. I had a lot of it and it just made sense then. And plus two, like, 
what's the one thing people like to see on the wall? Themselves. So it really did. It, it was a very exciting little parlor. And it was, I mean, it, I remember there were a couple of very big fights with some of the other artists and that they did not like what I was doing. They did not, they thought I was cheapening, but it was, but that's just because nobody was having fun in there. You know, I can't, I don't understand, you know, I mean, it was very interesting, but I don't understand how a video of a woman cutting her own hair and eating it is applicable to my living room or my nightlife. I don't, I mean, I get it, but I'm sorry for what happened to you. <laughs> Can you show me on this, you know, art exhibit where you were hurt <laughs> because, and who hurt you? Yeah, it was just, it was never, I wasn't escaping necessarily, but I was trying to get somewhere where I belonged, where I felt, no, not belong, where I felt comfortable. Belong is, it seems to put the onus on other people, where I just, you know, I could be myself, which is to say I wasn't anything. I am sort of a shiny exterior. I will reflect what I'm shown. So I just wanted to get somewhere where I could do that where I, I wanted to create, I'm going to do it anyways. I could stay at the Ritz and, you know, make break room boards, or I could go to the nightclubs, get a bunch of stuff and then draw what I saw. And it was just basically looking for, for better resources, better information, better, more, you know, fun. Arjun, some of our other conversations, you've kind of summarized that approach to your art. So how do you, how do you think about that? I, I will see things and I will think I can put them together differently or better. I, it's, there is no thought process. There never has been a thought process. Um, in so much that there's just, I learn a new technique and I want to apply it retroactively to everything that's been created since or before um, and reinvent and reshow, you know, I mean, I basically, there is there is a process, but it and it is very driven and it is very focused. But I am not really in on the information. I'm not part of that. Whatever my brain is telling my hands, I'm often not. I have to remember that I forgot. And subsequently, like you'll see things in my artwork, and I think it's a key to artwork that things can't be too perfect. That's why I don't like a lot of. I mean, I, I love computer design, pure computer design, but a lot of times I think taking a hand out of things. I see it. I can see it. The new, the new, the, you know, the new generations can't, and that's fine. That's not, it's, it's a different sort of thing. It's funny. Now we're so used to online. We're so used to web, go pick up a vintage magazine and it will just, your eyes will cross and you'll, it, you can't believe how crooked everything is. Cause it was all hand laid out. And although it's slight, it's obvious. And so I think that, there's things that I see in my artwork that when I put two colors next to each other and a line lines up and I don't like it, I can't, it's not right. And I say never again. And then you know, every piece I create, there's one line in there. It's just that it does breaks that one rule of mine that things can't overlap or things can't touch or it doesn't, you know, used to be with my, the transparencies, there was a crazy background and then a subject in front of them. And with the, I, I do this by layering colored paper. So it's basically the opposite of painting a cell with paint, painting a, like a clear, where you have to start with the, like, let's say the eyes, then paint the face, then paint you backing up. This way you have to layer forward on my paper, on the paper. And subsequently to save paper or whatever time, or I thought when doing the backgrounds, I wouldn't 
obviously do the background where their subject was going to be. Like you're just covering up work. But then when I got it done, I would realize that the background wasn't cohesive. The line that started at the bottom did not, it was just a hair off. And so socially at some point then that, yes, every piece that you see of my color work since 19, probably 95, the background, there is a full on background behind the entire subject, small pieces, little bit, everything, because when you squint, it all makes, it has to lay out a certain way. I did an interview and someone asked me the hard, it was a live interview and someone asked me the hardest question that I've ever been asked. And that was, can you describe the American music show? So Arge, <laughs> can you describe, can you describe the American music show? I, I hope to live long enough when they invent the word that does, but right now, no, it was a celebration of self. It was self-abration. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I have a really, I have to look it up. I once, for whatever reason, I was with Dick and we were sitting there and I interviewed him. I just said, hey, I want to write something about the interview. And I asked him some questions and wrote down his answers. And I have to find, I've just kind of been sitting on that about like, you know, like I noticed, like I said, sometimes like, like you don't give people directions. Like Dick never gave you directions. Like it really, and he just, I was like, what? And he went, yeah. Well, people don't like it, and they don't do what you tell them anyways. So, no, I mean, I found, you know, I was welcomed into that world through the Metro, through, you know, we started going over there uh, for Tuesday night taping. Well, so can we just stop for one second? So the American Music Show was an Atlanta public access television show that um, ran for, gosh, 30, 40 years. Um, it's where RuPaul got got its start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, a- don't ask me to do math uh, on the fly like no, this. Uh, no one would. No one, no one. That's one thing. Numbers don't apply. And, and so I'm asking Arge about the American Music Show because you became part of the American Music Show family at some point, right? I think anybody so. was welcome who acted right. And, and, and even that was a wide berth. That was a wide berth. Depending on what you, depending on what you were bringing, you were allowed to take in equal amounts. Um, so anybody who wasn't involved, and, and of course, it was just another outlet. I wanted to draw. I wanted to do these things. I was never very good on camera. I was very rarely on camera. Um, but yeah, I mean, they welcomed everybody. They, you know, and it is amazing. It's in the. It's like on online when people will talk about, oh yeah, Backstreets was you know uh, the heyday. My you know cloud. And I was like. That thing was open for 60 years before you started going. It was open for 25 after that. Like, literally millions of people, that's their heyday, but it was all at different times. So the American Music Show, yeah, there were entire – I didn't know anything about the early. And that's kind of the great thing about the American Music Show is it never came up. We might have an old character stop by that I didn't – from the old days, but it was never – it was always what's happening right now. What's going on right now? And so it just was not, it was timeless in that it was not old or new. It was just what it was right then. And so you met Dick and David and those folks through through the Metro? You you got involved with the show through? Um, I met Dick and David through, through, I believe, the Metro, yes. if I And Dick and David love that kind of thing, like the social aspect of that kind of thing. And so I think I met them through having parties at my house, and there were good, there was a great mix of people, and it was just... And I wasn't trying to force anything on anybody that I remember. I mean, I don't know. You might want to interview some other people about like that. Oh, my God, what an asshole. Um, 
I don't remember I did that. I just wanted everybody to have a good time. And so, yeah, I met them through, and then I think I went over to the house. Just They say, hey, we taped the show on Tuesdays. So you should come over. I didn't, you know, I walk into that place. There's people I had no idea about, and the house is set up like a TV studio. Um, the bar is like a parade float front and center on the, on what would be a TV wall was the bar. Um, and the room was organized pointing toward it. It was just great fun. And you didn't know who would be there, who would stop by, what fights would happen. I mean, you know, some people couldn't stand other people, but they'd all come to anyways. And it was, it was, it was insane magic. It was just, it was a crazy. And again, at the head of it, Dick Richards driving it, but never at the wheel, <laughs> never really at the wheel. Everybody just knew to, you know, you've got one shot. He filmed it. I remember it was filmed in real time. And I remember years later, who could imagine there would be director's cuts? And I was like, good job, Dick. We don't have anything to put on the director's cut. <laughs> there was a fa- there's a famous episode and I won't say the person's name. She is a celebrity of, of, much import. And she appeared on the show and lip synced. She's a singer. I know this is narrowing it down, but I'm still not going to say <laughs> it's still. Uh, and she got up and she did her number and it was fabulous, but she didn't like it. And she was close enough with the family that she could say to Dick, no, I don't like that. I want to do it again. And so they let her do it again. And then Dick ran both. And if I remember correctly, including the tantrum <laughs> or mm, not tantrum, but <laughs> and so we didn't see her for a while after that. But <laughs> something I realized at the thing at Emory at Andrew Kingston's thing at Emory, and it had never dawned on me because we didn't think about these things. What but was this that Dick and and I guess James and who the, the original founding core either worked for. This is where I'm a little hazy on the on the history because again, Dick, he, he didn't sit around and talk about it. None of us do. Like I don't, you don't think like, oh, remember that time? You don't. We just didn't do that. Like if I had a Polaroid, that was great because we bring it out. Like look at the mess. I wonder if she'll be a me- this big a mess this weekend. Like not um, that they had worked toward getting public access, which was a hugely important thing. It was the only way. You know, now with YouTube, everybody's a star. But in the, the before times, they had worked to get this thing. Well, so then Dick and David, or Dick and, and the front camera, grabbed the original, grabbed the spot they had the entire time. I believe the Friday night at eleven thirty spot that they had for forty years on this thing. They grabbed that and they would produce content. No, I don't think they ever missed a week. And yeah, you'd think I was. Nothing. I was just trying to keep up with them. That's what the Polaroid collection is. Until we were there and I was talking, you had the panel had from everybody, from every faction. I realized that, like, you know, I'm basically two years ago, when Dick died, I was the age he was when I met him. Dick only died a few years ago. Um, But I remember thinking, I don't want to go out every night. (laughs) Like, I'm, no, I'm, you know. I enjoy myself and I have a good time, but I can't do that. Now, going out was a little different then. It was a lot more fun. They always went out. Basically, what I'm saying is he had lobbied for and gotten the primetime spot for a show he would never be home to see live. 
they were never going to be home at Friday at 1130. It would be a pandemic or a, or I don't know. But the, the genius of it was, and it hammeringly created this content for a thing that they never looked at. They watched it when he edited it or whatever, just got the final copy done. I think it re-ran and we would look at it once in a while. But nope, yeah, it was just, it was for, and then and two, it was, you create it and you put it out there. And then RuPaul comes in. I come in. People come in based on it. But yeah, it was just basically, like they were never going to be home to watch at 11.30 on Friday, on Friday night. It was never going to, and I think that was just subsequently the genius of it. And that, like, you know, RuPaul moved to New York. All of them did. Bunny, Ru, uh, Larry T, and Loma. They all moved to New York. Um, it left a vacuum, which is where I came in. But they just, it wasn't that, like, Dick, I never felt like Dick sought to fill the void. It was just there were vacancies, and I'm so glad people stop by and fill them. <laughs> because we can't go look for these people. But that people just sort of stepped up. And then after I wasn't... Than other people. And then you had somebody like Rosser, the genius of Rosser Shemansky, who just the entire time was whoever the show needed to be that show. Like it just, he, you know, he's an old lady this week. He's a colonel next week. He's a. They ended up capturing a couple of remarkable decades in the city's history and in the community's history, like kind of in the same way that you did, because you you once said you had no idea what you were doing. You just knew you needed to do do it. it. And it seems like that kind of applies to the American music show aesthetic. I think um, I learned that from the American music show. I think I learned that that was a lesson Dick taught me. I think Dick just was like, I would say something like, and he would just be like, oh, that's, you know, you should write that down and you should do what you should just go do. You know, I I remember I would get some, because of my anxiety, I would get so nervous about, we got to go tonight. Tonight's the show, you know, and it's 8 PM and I am already a nervous wreck about it. And Dick and David didn't never featured angst, never featured it. That's just, woof. And I remember Dick saying to me, there is no reason to rush somewhere you're just going to be bored like an hour after you get there so let's have another drink before we blast off you just kept moving and with respect to what you had created you can't you know let's build on this or let's do this or that was funny let's do that again um you know so they'd have regular reoccurring themes or things like that but i felt lucky because in hindsight we were the last generation basically who needed an engine to find each other. Whereas now all you need is a search engine to locate others like yourself. And it's a big difference. Both have merit. Do I think what we did, what was done, not what we did, what was done by many artists, many in the collection, Ali Roy Soul, I mean, at many roster, all these people, what, what was done at the time can never be done again. But the wonderful things that are happening now couldn't have been done then. It's a different thing. You know, yes, if I had all those years of feeling the isolation taken away because at least I could get on a monitor and know that there were five more people like me, even though one was in Portland, one was in whatever. You know, a lot of the magic, like I I referenced earlier, a lot of the magic that happened was not based on the characters they were doing, not based on the events of the night, it was based on the fact that we had had dinner together three nights that week and they were mad at me because I had said something to somebody or I didn't show somebody enough respect or what, like they're saying, but now showtime and we're not going to, but then, yeah, yeah, 
Betty Jack Devine's mad at me. Like it's not, or, or so-and-so is not mad, but like it, we were family. And I think that came across in the characters that even though the characters were wildly different, there was a family at its core, good, bad, or indifferent. We were still a family. So speaking of family, you're now a member of another family. You're a member of the Rose Library family. So what what does it mean to you to uh, have this work that you had to create um, here at the Rose Library to, sh- to share with other people? You, you have to create, and you hope that it's a body. And And I think that the reason they refer to our work as a body is because once you're not anymore, it is. It's a, and you hope it's cohesive. You hope it's applicable. You hope it can remain relevant. What I create are my children. They really are. And, and I know that's a corny, ridiculous thing. What I create are my, my, my children. But I run an orphanage, and it's got to go because I, I need to create something else. I don't hang my own work. I don't hang, you know. Oh, I don't have any behind me, do I? Um, <laughs> it's like a child. And so like a child, you raise it or you create it to go in the world and stand on its own and have a conversation with the viewer that the viewer needs to have. It can say many different things. It can be many different things. It can be mean many different things. But basically, you can stand five feet from this interaction and never have to be involved. And I think that's what I wanted. I wanted what, what, I, you know, what would I like to be most remembered for? Being forgettable. I just, it just that the work is there. And so what it means to me is that like, you know, I know the Polaroid collection has value in the entity that it is as the Polaroid collection for for many reasons, much of what I've created has, it does have that like on its own. But when the Rose library, when you came about when Emery, it was just another piece of the perfect puzzle. Yes. Did what we created, because there's this content, did it in itself create the need for an outlet for it? Maybe. Um, but that all of these things, what I've done, doesn't have to depend on itself. It could become part of a larger conversation, and it fits in. And you can go in certain nights or certain things. I've got things for 800 East that Ed didn't have, or this. And, and nothing is orphaned. It means the world to me that... These aren't alone. What I created isn't alone. Atlanta Intersections is produced by Randy Gu and Nick Twomlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor and the legendary band with no name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our theme music. We're grateful for the support of our colleagues in the Rose Library, especially Lolita Rowe, Community Outreach Archivist, Jennifer Gunter King, Director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to the Tots Till Death crew, Henry Aaron, The Count Five, Joe Strummer, Etta James, and Crass for inspiration. Please join us next month for Episode 5 of Atlanta Intersections. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find the Rose Library's podcast on all your favorite podcast feeds. 